Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to go in our uh, scriptures this morning. So if you have a copy of the Lord's Word, please uh, open it to that. We started last week with part one, and you'll see how part two fits into this. But the uh, theme of the two Sundays has to do with uh, Jesus' heart for the sinful and suffering. Uh, I don't know, honest to goodness, in my own, I'll just speak for myself, a more touching portion of scripture than that invitation Jesus gave that we looked at last week. Come unto me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. What is discipleship? He said, learn from me. There's discipleship. And um, that's what he invites all of us to. No matter how sinful, uh, no matter how burdened, no matter how much suffering, come to me. Now this morning, and by the way, you notice in that verse we pointed out, it's the only time in the entire Bible, the only time where Jesus tells us what he is like in his heart. You won't find it anywhere else. You want to be like the Lord Jesus? Of course you do. That's why you're here. He says, you want to be like me? I am gentle. I am lowly in heart. That's who he is. He never acts outside of his mercy, humility, and gentleness. Never. No matter what he does, no matter how much power is manifested, no matter how much holiness, there's always that gentleness and lowliness in heart. And only the Son of God could say, no matter what your problem is, what your burden is, come to me. Can you imagine anyone else saying that? But Jesus can say it because of who he is. Now, today we come to Mark 10, and Jesus is going to amplify for us in his message of Mark 10 what he said only one time in John 13, that he would give his disciples an example. Now, you would think Jesus might say, now I'm going to leave you an example. I want you to do what I'm doing. You think he would say that over and over again. He doesn't. He only says it one time. Just like he said who he is one time, gentle, lowly in spirit. Here he is going to say one time, I'm leaving you an example. And that's when he got down on his knees and he took a pail of water and he took a towel and he washed all the feet of the disciples. Now, Peter never forgot that. Remember, Peter said, don't wash my feet, Lord. Jesus said, hey. If you don't let me wash your feet, Peter, you can't have any part with me. And Peter says, give me a whole bath. You know, just pour it on. I can't bear that thought. So 30 years later about Peter is thinking on that, I think. And then he says this in his words. He's the only writer other than what Jesus said in John 13 who talks about providing an example and he says in 1 Peter 4, to this you believers, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, here it is, leaving you an 
example that you should follow in his steps. Peter had a long time following in those steps, didn't he? We see him down at the judgment hall where Jesus is being beaten and gorged and pummeled. And he's there by the fire and how weak he was, how dim was Peter's wick in the judgment hall. But then we see him like a blazing fire on the day of Pentecost. That can happen to you. Weak, failure maybe, sinful, and you can become a blazing fire all by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So when the Apostle Paul now uses Jesus' example of humility in Philippians 2, 5 to 7, he shows forth who Jesus said he was. I am gentle and lowly in spirit and lowly in heart. Paul said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking upon him the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. It's called the kenosis passage, if you're interested in technicalities. And it comes from the Old King James, where it says he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of deity. He emptied himself of the right to deity. And he took on just a, a look like any Jew of the day. He had no beauty that we would desire him. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. We did not esteem him for who he was. He came in the essence of a man. And then he came in the morphe, the very icon, the very image of a servant, of a slave. And that's what gentle and lowly in heart looks like. So this morning, I want to kind of shift just a little bit with you, keeping with the main theme. But I want us to see how we can be great in the sight of God. Let me ask you this. Have you ever once thought, prayed, or said as a Christian, I want to be great in the sight of God? Is it proper to say that or to pray that? Being great in the sight of God. I guess that raises another question. Are you ambitious? Are you an ambitious person? If I ask those who knew you the best, would they say you're ambitious? What does it mean? Well, some define ambition as an intense desire for success or power, a desire to achieve honor, wealth, or fame. And its motto is, he who has the most toys wins. And then I saw a bumper sticker. It says, he who has the most toys, still dies. So what are you going to do with all the toys? Being ambitious in and of itself is not sinful. But the key is what we're pursuing. And maybe even the greater key is what is the motivation? What's down in the deepness of your soul? So as we look at Mark 10, 32 to 45... 
We want to be reminded that Mark's gospel, it's the shortest one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only has 16 chapters. It's a very fast-moving book. The key word from the old King James is straightway, translated more in the ESV and NIV by the words immediately. So you see that word constantly, and immediately it's a fast-moving book, and it's presenting Jesus, not as the king that Matthew does, or the son of man that Luke does, or the son of God that John does, but he's seen as the servant. He's seen as the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, the lowly servant of Jehovah. And so it all comes together with Philippians and with Peter and with the washing of the feet and with what Jesus said, who he was. I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart. And pictures as we sang this morning about Mary's Magnificat, when she talked about he came to those who were lowly in stature, those nobodies that nobody cares about. The sinner, the addict, the prostitute, the immoral, those in prison. Jesus came and he felt right at home with them. And the Pharisees couldn't stand it. Look at him. He even eats with sinners. And then Jesus gave those beautiful three parables, one sermon. The lost sheep, the lost silver, the lost son. And he shows that God loves sinners. Why? Because Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. So the key verse in Mark is the one we're going to end up with today that Josiah led us to sing about our sins upon his shoulder. So beautiful. Key verse in Mark 10, 45 in your Bible, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, why did you come? I came not to serve, be served, but to serve. Wherever you see Jesus is serving. And then the ultimate service is to give his life as a ransom for many. So when you come to Mark 10, he's on his way to Jerusalem. This is the fourth time that he stops and he teaches his disciples. What did he teach them on? If you look at beginning of verse 32, they're on the road. Jesus is uh, walking with them. Those who followed were afraid. And he took the 12 again and began to tell them, this is the fourth time, what was to happen to him. It all changed six months before. It all changed in Matthew 16. When up to that time, he is the king of Israel, the Messiah. And then they officially, as a nation, the Pharisees say, we have no king but Caesar. And up there in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. And I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Now, everything from that moment on 
is not the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus for 16 chapters. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've never preached that message one time. That's not the message we preach. We preach, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The kingdom is postponed. The church now is being erected. 2,000 years it's being built. A holy temple to God made up of precious stones, black ones from Uo, Nigeria, white ones from Riga, yellow ones from Shanghai. And soon that last stone will be placed there and hallelujah, Jesus say, come on up hither, come up home. And the church will be taken to heaven. Four times Jesus stops and he says, the son of man must go to Jerusalem and suffer under the chief priests and scribes and be crucified. Disciples didn't ask him anything about that because they didn't want to hear it and they didn't care. They're still thinking kingdom. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom is on the brain. Rickenbach said this, toward everything which is contrary to natural desire, there is produced in the heart a blindness which nothing but a miracle can heal. That's so true. You, you see it all the time with your children, mothers, don't you? You tell them what to do, what not to do, and they never heard a word you said. Why? They weren't interested in what you wanted them to do. They knew what they wanted to do. That's the disciples. They didn't want to hear about the cross. All they had their mind on was Jesus on a throne in Jerusalem, ruling the world, and they were with him there, uh, ruling under his leadership. So let's look at verses 35 to 45, where we see two paths to greatness. The path of selfish ambition, what I want to get out of life for myself. And then the path of spiritual ambition. Is it wrong to be ambitious? Not if you're ambitious for God. Is it wrong to want to be great before God? Not if that's the true essence of your motivation. I want my life to really accomplish something great. I don't want to just slop through the Christian life. And then die and go to heaven. I want my life to count for something. And the only thing that really matters is what is the will of God for my life? That's all that matters. Nothing else matters. Did you know my will and did you do my will? It really comes down to that. Number one, greatness is not found in self-promotion, but in self-denial. You want to be great before God? Greatness is not found in self-promotion, but in self-denial. Now we see James and John here first with their personal ambition. And verse 35, it says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> can you believe it? I mean, can you believe the audacity of it? Honest to goodness. Uh, here they were called the sons of thunder. <laughs> Yeah, they were sons of thunder. They were brash. 
They were bold, and they, along with Peter, were what we call the inner circle. The inner circle three. Jesus gave them opportunities that he didn't allow the other disciples. For instance, when you think of these three, you see that they are with and and they catch a glimpse of the glory of God and the miniature millennial kingdom up there on Mount Tabor, possibly, the Mount of Transfiguration. They beheld the glory of the Lord. Those three, not the others. And then you come along, you see Jesus goes into a little private room where a parent's daughter had died. Jesus calls John, James, Peter, come along. The racist Jairus, the daughter from, from the death. If you follow Peter and when he went to Lydda in the home in Tabitha, you will find he did exactly what Jesus did with Jairus' daughter. Peter watched what he did so he knew what to do. That's what a disciple does. Every disciple, Luke 640, when he is fully taught, shall be like his teacher. And he watched him. And then he did. They had that privilege. And then they were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they were certain that They had privileges above and beyond the rest of the disciples, and they were bold enough to ask for privilege in the coming kingdom. Mark leaves it out, but Matthew adds another point in a same parallel passage in in Matthew chapter 20. Because Matthew says the same thing about James and John coming. But then what Matthew adds is the mother of James and John comes along with them. Matthew 20, 20 says this, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John's father, Zebedee, then the mother of the sons of of, of Zebedee came up to him, to Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, why is this important? Why would you bring your mother? I mean, are you a grown-up man or not? Well, what's mama doing there? Why her? Well, it's not just bringing their mother. It's who their mother was. And I'll be willing to bet if I were a betting man, if if I were a betting man, put that in your spiritual pipe and smoke it a while. So here is something you probably never knew. And I just learned it when I was in the study for the last six months for this passage. And that is, I want you to notice the unique position the mother of James and John occupied, which will explain why they brought mother to Jesus to ask the same thing. If you study the crucifixion of Christ and you put Matthew up there and you put Mark and then you put John and you get a harmony of the Gospels and you see what each writer says there, you will find that there were three women there at the cross. There was Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus cast demons. And then there's a third woman Now, who is that third woman at the cross? She's identified three different ways. 
Matthew calls her the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So it's James and John mother. Mark calls her Salome. That's her name. John calls her, I'll catch this, the sister of Jesus' mother. So Zebedee, or James and John's mom, is the aunt of Jesus. Got it? And they are first cousins, just like John the Baptist was through Elizabeth. James and John are first cousins of Jesus. Now, I never knew that before. And I think I'm right in saying that. You can check it out. So what we have here now is a family deal. So that makes James and John cousins of Jesus. And they're going to play the family card here. It's not just personal ambition. Now it's family ambition. Everybody's in on this deal and they're going to come and they're going to gang up on Jesus and they think they're going to be able to persuade him. So let's be honest, especially those of you in the business world. It's not what you know, but what? It's who you know. And if you know the right people at the right time, you can make the right phone call and get the right deal. You got the promotion. The only thing is you manipulated. The only thing was you wanted it so bad and your personal ambition was so, so heavy, you used whatever means you could get to get that position. And that's what they're doing here, I think. And Jesus said what? That may be the world does it, boys and mama, but not so among you. You want to be a leader? Are you a leader? It's important to realize the word leader, as important as spiritual leadership may be, is only used six times in the Bible, in the New Testament. What do you read about Moses, my leader? No. You read what? Moses, my servant. Joshua, my leader? No, no. Joshua, my... David, the greatest king? No. David, my servant. Seek to do great things for the Lord, but don't promote yourself or be manipulative. Jeremiah 45, 5 says, And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Now, the key words there are two words, for yourself. But in the church, we haven't learned too much from Jeremiah or Jesus. You look at the Christendom. We got our popes, we got our cardinals, we got our monsignors, we got our archbishops, we got our bishops, priests, right on down the list of denominational muckety-mucks, and the list goes on. And Jesus simply says, not so among you. Get it and get it down. You know, even when a man desired the office of a bishop, and Paul says, that's a good thing. I want to remind you, it's not like a bishop today. A bishop today, you're held in high esteem. You're a pastor, a priest, for the most part. But when you desired the office for a bishop back in 1 Timothy time, Titus time, you were signing your own death sentence. When the Roman Empire came after 
in, the, in those uh, 10 persecutions leading up to the worst of Diocletian and beginning with Nero, who'd they go after first of all? The bishops, the pastors, the episcopoi, the presbyteri, the poema, made an example to the flock by taking them out, flogging them, crucifying them, decapitating them. So when a man in the 2,000 years ago sought the office of a bishop, it wasn't a thing of esteem. It was a thing of servanthood. Jesus said in four words, not so among you. William Carey, the father of modern mission, said, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. And now they name him the father of modern missions. And he did a hard thing going to India. Secondly, greatness is not found in self-confidence, but in submission. It's not found in self-confidence, but in submission. So let's look first to this matter of sound theology and submission. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They say unto him, yeah, we're able. There you go again. They had three and a half years of living with Jesus and seeing what gentleness and a lowly heart and the spirit of humility was all about. That Jesus never did one thing outside of his spirit of humility. And they saw it all for three and a half years. And here they are, this bold, brash, proud, selfishly ambitious little group with their mom. We want to sit on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Now, before we get too harsh with them, we could at least commend them for the fact that they believed in Jesus as their Savior. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah. They believed in a coming kingdom. They believed that Jesus was the coming king. And they understood that some would sit on those 12 glorious thrones around Jesus. They just misunderstood how to get there. So they've got some pretty good theology, but it can tell you that your theology and your biblical knowledge can be pretty good. And yet you can be an arrogant person. Paul says it this way, three little words. I charge every pastor, elder, deacon here, every person who's in any kind of leadership. As you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, remember Paul's words, knowledge puffs up. Some of the most arrogant people I've ever known in my life are the most educated, even theologically. And they know it, and they think they know it all, and guess what? They sure are proud of it. Knowledge puffs up. Be careful. Do you know what you're asking? And of course, they they didn't. Are you really able to drink that cup I'm drinking from and be baptized, identified with what I'm being identified with? 
Those are avenues, references to suffering. The Lord is saying, look, you're going to be elevated in the kingdom. But there's a cost. There's a price to pay. And that's the principle here. That's the teaching. What you want is glory. But you don't want suffering. And the way to the throne is through the cross. Therefore, take up your cross daily and follow me. They still are not asking one question about the cross that Jesus just talked about. One of the key traits of spiritual leadership is being submissive to the authority of Christ and the authority of those whom he has delegated his authority. And in my home, I must be a submissive person. I must serve my family, serve my children, serve my wife, serve my husband. At work, the same. At the church, the same. Submit yourself to the authorities that are over you, that they can give a good report someday to the Lord. Then he moves from suffering and Submission, he goes to suffering and glory. The Lord's answer is pretty gentle. Jesus said to them, verse 39, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. That's a prophecy, folks. It's a prophecy. Yeah, you'll have the suffering. You'll drink. James and John. James was the first martyr among the apostles. He was beheaded. John, he was the last martyr. James had his head cut off. Happened fast, sudden, boom. John, it was a slow, agonizing, disappointing death as an exile on the Isle of Patmos, which was virtually a prison island that we would liken to Alcatraz. Rejected, exiled in John's case, Rejected, executed in the case of James. But verse 40, but to sit on my right hand on my left hand, this is not mine to give, it is for those whom it has been prepared. And then Matthew 20 again adds a little insight, by my father, by my father. Spiritual leadership doesn't come as a result of added theological degrees behind your name or an offices you hold becomes by your example of life and then by the election of a sovereign God who, who catapults you to that place of leadership. And more often than not, it is not something you have sought after, it's something others have sought you for. And they've seen the hand of God and they've seen that example of life and they say, I think you would be, and you fill in the details. True greatness, true leadership is found in giving yourself in service to others. True service always has a price to pay. There will be the baptism of suffering, of rejection. But our aim is his glory, even if it means suffering. I want to remind you, Peter says, you want to do the will of God, you want to know the will of God, one of the principles of the will of God is suffering. Following his example, as Peter said. 
Lastly, let's close it out here. Greatness is not found in self-centeredness, but in serving others. So greatness is not found in self-promotion, it's in self-denial. It's not found in self-confidence, it's found in submission. It's not found in self-centeredness, but in serving others. Note the first, the contrast of greatness. Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. There it is again. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You see, the the rulers in Jesus' day thought their high and grandiose positions and titles made them a great leader. And they want everybody around to serve them. They sit on the throne. They've got the waiters. They've got being served. They issue this order and that order. That was their idea of leadership. That's the Gentiles. That's the nations. And the great men that Jesus talked, the oi megaloi, do you get the word megaloi? These are the mega ones. These are really the powerful. They exercised authority and throw their weight around. The Jews saw with the Romans, Caesar, Pilate, Jewish leaders, Jesus clearly teaches greatness is not achieved through power or position. And in verse 43, he says, not so with you. So he's drawing a sharp contrast between the way the world operates and the way he expects his falls to act. Listen to Samuel Brengel, the great servant of God with his Salvation Army years ago. He wrote the final estimate of a man showed that history cares not an iota for the rank or title a man has borne or the office he has held, but only the quality of his deeds and the characters of mind and heart. And this leads us to the truth Christ presents concerning the crown of greatness. The crown of greatness. Because the pagan approach doesn't work in the kingdom work. The greater are not those who climb their way to the top. They're not the ones that know the way of politics around the office. They don't manipulate the way. They don't make the phone call. They realize promotion comes not from the east nor from the west, but from the Lord. Psalm 75. Jesus said, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Are you a servant? You desire to serve the Lord? Do you want to be great for God? Do you want to do great things for God? You're a diakonos. That's the word translated servant. It was used of a table waiter. We like to go to a restaurant. Oh, sir, what may I get you? We like being served. We don't like going to the table and saying, how may I serve you? You want to serve? You're going to be a diakonos. Let's go a step farther. Let's go below the diakonos. You got the doulos. Who was the doulos? He was the common slave of the Roman Empire. He was a slave owned by others. He had a master. You want to be great? You become my doulos, my slave. He even goes a step further in Corinthians. 
He goes beyond the diakonos, below the didos, to the hooperetes. Hooperetes made up of two Greek words meaning the under rower. So on a Roman galley ship, the worst of the worst slaves, they were placed down in the very bottom of the three-tier ship, and down there they would serve and get the boat, the ship moving along. Those are the words Jesus uses for the servant. Verse 45, we began the message with the suffering of Christ on the cross as a suffering servant of Jehovah going to Jerusalem. Now we end the message with the same example. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Word for ransom is only found here and one other time in the New Testament. It's the Greek word lutron. It has a very specific meaning to it. It literally means to buy out of the slavery market. You've seen the picture. The slaves up on the auction block. Who'll give me one? Who'll give me two? And every so often there was a very kind person who didn't want a slave in order to own him, but to free him and set him free. And with the Lutron, with the Lutron, specific word, that paid the ransom. The slave now is set free. And Jesus is down in the quarter of time and he sees a whole bunch of slaves here. And he says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life a lutron, a ransom for you. And that little word for, just an important word, it means it's anti, it means in the stead of, which means a substitutionary way. Imagine you've been sentenced to death and you're going to the gas chamber. And you're taken out of your cell and you're in shackles and you're on your way to be strapped down on the gurney and then the pellets will be released and you will be dead. But as you get there, you find out somebody was able to step in and take your place. And the guards take you out, free your shackles, it says you're a free man. That's what Jesus did. You're in the slaveryhood of sin of satan and of hell and this gentle and lowly in heart jesus comes along and he pays the lutron the price is fully paid closing with one of my spiritual heroes count nicholas von zinzendorf he lived from 1700 to 1760. His title was Count. So he was tempted by power and wealth. But his attitude toward ambition was summed up when he went to a gallery and there was a picture, a portrait, a painting of the suffering of Christ. Hanging on a cross, beaten and pummeled, scourged. So badly they couldn't even recognize him as a man. And he couldn't leave that portrait. And finally he wrote, got, went back and he wrote down. And these were his words, I have one passion. It is he, he alone. Set aside all the fame, the fortune, 
and became the founder and leader of the Moravian Church. One in every 92 Moravians went to the foreign mission field. The churches they planted around the world were three times as large as, large as the churches that sent them out. I think he understood what this servanthood, this gentleness of heart and spirit is all about. And then Jesus is the epitome. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Because we children of Adam want to become great, he became small. Because we will not stoop, he humbled himself. Because we want to rule, he came to serve. You want to be great? You want to be ambitious for God? Then make sure you follow in the footsteps of Jesus with that gentle heart, that lowliness of heart, and that desire to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's bow in prayer. And with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you'd say, Harry, I'm not sure. I'm on my way to heaven. I don't know if I've ever come the way of the cross. But he did all that for me. I want to believe in him and trust in him as my savior. Do that as you sit there. Let us know or friend know here, or an elder or spiritual friend. And as a Christian, I invite you to surrender all you are and never hope to be. And humble yourself under the mighty lordship and the hand of God. Father, please have your Holy Spirit work in and among us to bring us to points of decision that will bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.